Today we're starting a new series on the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. So Jesus says these, these words, I am, multiple times in the Gospel of John. And we want to talk about that and look at it together because Jesus is a very big deal in Christianity and understanding who Jesus is, is at the very heart of what a Christian is, the, the clues in the name, Christianity. So we make a big deal of Jesus. We want to understand who he is. And so we want to do a series looking at that, what he said about himself and what he meant by what he said about himself. And my hope is that if you're not a follower of Jesus, this series might really help you for any of the messages you're able to listen to. I hope it will help you make sense of who Jesus claimed he was, even if in the end you don't believe him. Because that might happen. You might hear Jesus say, I'm this, I'm that. And you might say, ah, I just don't buy it. I don't think that's who he is. That's great. In a, in a way, I'd love you to be able to understand, though, what he was claiming about himself so you can make sense of it. Because some of the phrases he uses are not immediately obvious what he meant. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I really hope it's going to help you too. But I hope it's going to help you encounter the person of the living Jesus, the risen Jesus, which is what we believe about him, that he's not just died for our sins, but he's risen and is ruling the world right now and praying for you right now, ascended in glory. But that you might understand who he is for you and what he says about himself in a deeper and richer way that helps you enjoy him more and delight in him and live a life that is pleasing to him. So if you could grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 4, that would be great, John chapter 4. So for Christians, the identity of Jesus Christ is the central question in the world. It's like the main thing that Christians really want to talk about. Uh, if you're talking to, if I'm talking to someone who's not a believer, which obviously I often am, then in a way my central question or the central question I want to talk about with this person to discuss Christianity is, who's Jesus? That's like the central question for me. That's the first question in the Alpha course when we run our Introduction to Christianity course as a church, and many churches do it. The first question, week one, is who's Jesus? That's really at the heart of Christianity. Now, that might not be the primary question for my friend or my relative. They might be asking something completely different. They might be thinking, I don't want to talk about who Jesus is. I want to ask you, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Or I want to ask, why don't you support gay marriage? Or how can you be a Christian with the history of the church relating to slavery? Or what? many, many things they might want to ask. The big five, I often think, suffering, sexuality, slavery, scripture, science. But there's many others as well. And they may want to talk about that. Now, all of those are big questions that actually we do talk about at King's quite a lot. And we've done a, num a bunch of teaching and evening seminars on several of those issues in the last couple of months. And they're massively important. But for Christians, they're not the primary question. The primary question is simply, who is Jesus? Who is he? And then when you get the answer to that question, it provides you with a lens through which to look at all the other questions. So, for instance, the question about suffering, you say, okay, well, what did Jesus say and do about suffering? How did he talk about it? And ultimately, what did he do about it? And that would take you to the, the cross and the resurrection. Or you could say, what well, sexuality? So what was Jesus? Jesus as a single man who talked a lot about human flourishing and, and sexual ethics. What did Jesus say and do about human sexuality? Or how did Jesus respond to slaves or oppressed people or captives? And so on. So you take the question, who is Jesus? And then you use that as the, the lens through which to ask the other stuff. If Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose again from the dead, then that completely reframes all of our conversations about suffering, sexuality, slavery, scripture, science, whatever it might be. And that's what I mean by saying that the identity of Jesus is the central question in the world for the Christian. 
And happily for us, it's something that he talked about quite a bit, particularly in John's gospel. And so we're going to read John chapter 4 and beginning at verse 1 and see how he did that. John 4 and verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go and call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father and the, in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of God. John has written this gospel and structured it very carefully. He's done it, a lot of it, around groups of seven. I just want to show you this for a moment, so to introduce this story, because it'll help us make sense of what's going on here. But he's organised a lot of his gospel in groups of seven. So there are seven dramatic miracles in John's gospel, which John calls signs. Like the other gospels often call them miracles or wonders, but John calls them signs. He wants people to see this is a signpost pointing to the identity of Jesus Christ. And so there's seven of those. Water into wine, chapter 2. Healing the official son, chapter 4. Healing the paralyzed man, chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000, chapter 6. Healing the blind man, chapter 9. Raising Lazarus, chapter 11. And of course, rising from the dead himself, which is the most important sign in chapter 20. 
There are also seven times when Jesus makes a famous, they're often famous in, in history, the state famous I am the statements, these I ams in which he says, I am the something. So he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And my father's the vine dresser. Now, those seven statements have become very well known. And even if you don't go to church, you may well have heard some of them. They're quite well known statements about the identity of Jesus Christ. And there are seven of those, I am the something statements that come through. And the, the phrase that Jesus uses when he says, I am, in the original language, in Greek, which is the language this is written in, that's the phrase that's used in the Old Testament to describe the name of God himself. So when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, he reveals himself as, I am. That's my name. I am. And so when Jesus takes that phrase and applies it to himself, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine, whatever. He's taking not just the idea and this image of who he is, he's also attaching it to the divine name the name of God. And so those are seven signs, seven I am the statements, and then less well known, but I think quite important as well, is that Jesus also makes seven I am statements that aren't attached to any other words at the end. So seven times he says, I am the, but then seven times he just says, I am. And seven different occasions. And again, I've put the references here on that table so you can see it. Um, and what Jesus is saying, and each time he says those words, the phrase I am, is an interesting one because of course it can be the kind of thing you just say in normal conversation. Let's say somebody could say, who's Jesus? And you go, oh, I am. It could just be nothing more than that. It could mean, oh, that's me. But it can also mean I am in the sense of I am claiming the divine name for myself. And in at least one occasion, the Jews know full well that's what he's doing because when he says before Abraham was, I am, they pick up stones to throw at him for blasphemy because they know he's claiming to be God. And you have that, a similar dynamic like that in the story of the walking on the water. The disciples are in the boat, they're all scared. And then Jesus calls out to them, walking on the water, saying, don't be afraid, I am. And in, which might mean, don't be afraid, it's just me, it's only me. But it could also mean, don't be afraid, God is here. And that ambiguity, that sort of deliberate play on words runs throughout John's gospel. It's very powerful. And the first of them, the first, in fact, of all of those seven, and in fact, the first I am statement in the whole gospel of all 14, the first of those statements comes in the final verse of the passage that we've just read. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, I, the one speaking to you, I am. Or I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Chapter 4 and verse 26. And it is an extraordinary statement because it works at several different levels. The Samaritan woman says that she knows the Messiah is coming and that he's going to come when he comes, he'll explain everything. And so all of her questions, which she's got plenty of, they're all going to be resolved. When the Messiah comes, she'll find out who's right. Samaritans, Jews, don't worry. The Messiah will come and he'll straighten it all out. And at one level, when Jesus says, I am he, Jesus is simply saying, well, you're talking to him. Right? You, you, you're looking for the Messiah to come and straighten things out? Yeah, that's me. At one level, it's as simple as, sim as claiming, oh, that's, that's me, you're looking for me. And uh, so when he says, I am he, the one speaking to you, it's like, my dad used to do this. Do you remember, people, you know, when you used to have house phones, I know many of us still have a house phone, but kind of just use it for the broadband now. I never actually ring anyone on it. Um, if someone rings me, I think, what on earth's going on? There's this weird noise taking place because I'm so used to mobiles. But for many years, of course, people would ring your house phone 
And my dad <laughs> went through a phase, people would, would say on the phone, say, uh, hi, um, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to talk Charles, to Charles Wilson, is he there? And my dad would simply go, speaking, which I always found was slightly funny, but there was, a fa- there was a certain type of person who would answer the phone and say, speaking. In other words, I'm the one speaking to you, I am he. And Jesus might be doing nothing more than that. On one level he is, he's just saying, oh yeah, speaking, I'm, that's me. I'm the guy you want. So that's a sort of, kind of surface level of this comment he makes to the woman. I, the one speaking to you, that's me, I'm he. But of course there's more to it than that because Jesus isn't just saying, oh yeah, that's my name. You know, Charles Wilson, oh hi, can I talk to Jesus of Nazareth? Oh yeah, that's me. He's going deeper than that because the thing that he's saying, that's me, I'm speaking to you, is not, this is my first name, but it's because the woman has just said, the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And Jesus is then saying, I am the one speaking to you. That's me. And of course, he's saying, I am the Christ. I'm Israel's anointed king. I'm going to lead Israel to freedom. I'm going to be the ruler. I'm actually going to rule over the nations and all the nations will bring their worship and tribute to me, ultimately. That's a massive claim. And he's saying it using the words, I am, which evoke the divine name. So in some, at one level, he's just going, oh yeah, that's me you're looking for. But at another level, he's saying, I am the Lord in human form and the Messiah who is called Christ in one person. So at a second level, this is an explosive claim to his messiahship and his divinity. But there's a third level in play as well, right? So Jesus is one level saying, yeah, that's me. Another level he's saying, I am the divine name and the messiah. And at the third level, I just love the cleverness of Jesus, by the way. I love that he can talk like this and there's all these things to unpack about what he meant. But at a third level, John began his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the word. And he talks about Jesus. Jesus is the word. He's the voice of God in human form. Jesus is the voice or the speech or the word of God. And when Jesus speaks to the woman in chapter 4, verse 26, translated very literally, what he says is, I am the speaking one to you. I am, the divine name, the speaking one, the word, the voice, the speech of God to you. So again, very basically, he's saying, oh, that, you're looking for me. At another level, he's saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm Israel's God. And at a third level, he's saying, I am the word. I am the voice of God who has been sent to speak divine speech to you so you can hear and understand who God is and what he wants of you and how you can know him. You are in conversation. This woman, whose name we don't even know, at a well in the middle of the day, somewhere in the Middle East, and he says, you are in conversation with the Messiah the I am, the speaking one, the word made flesh. Listen. So it's an extraordinary statement that comes at the end of this story. The I am, the speaking one. And that revelation, and I think this often happens, where you read a passage or a story and at the very end something happens, which then makes you go back and reread the story through new eyes. So you, this happens with, you know, great movies sometimes, doesn't it? You watch a movie, you get to the very end and you go, oh, I didn't realize that, and now that I know that, I want to watch the movie again in order to make sense of it in a new way. And something of that happens when you read through this story. We hear at the very end, Jesus is the I am, the Messiah, the speaking one. Right, I'd now better go back to the beginning and think through, so what is this story trying to tell me? If this is the speaking one, this is the voice of God bringing order out of chaos, what's he saying? What does he want me to hear? What does he want this woman to hear? And what might he be saying to me about the way he might speak to me? 
So on, on the surface, it's a chat with a woman at a well, which moves from drinking water to a theology of worship. But I now want to go back and read it again and find out what the speaking one is saying. And the answer, you may not be surprised to hear by now, the answer is the speaking one is saying seven things. Because as you read through this passage, Jesus speaks seven different times. Which again, it's not, un, it's not an accident. That's the way that it's been structured. The speaking one speaks seven times. Moving from the quite, what sounds quite innocuous, quite basic conversation making through to the extremely significant revelation. But he gets there on a journey and I want to walk through them with you. So the first thing he says to her in verse 7 is simply, give me a drink. Right? Would, or softened a bit in the NIV. Would, can you give me a drink? You know, that kind of thing. But he's basically saying, hey, give me a drink. I'm thirsty. It's midday and it's the mid middle of the day in Israel, pretty much any time of year actually, but certainly for most of the year, it's too hot to be walking around without shade and he's tired and he wants to sit down, have a rest and have a drink. Who wouldn't? But he also wants to make conversation with this woman. And she is getting water in the middle of the day. You think, what's she doing that for? That's an odd time to go and fetch water. Surely that's the most tiring time of the day. And it is. And it seems that that's because she has got challenges of her own. She has got some shame issues as a result of her past, which will come to the fore in a few moments' time. So she's probably out there filling her water because she's kind of excluded in the village. And that looks like that's what's happened. And so you see, Jesus is saying, partly, give me a drink. He just wants to start a conversation with a woman who needs to know Jesus. If you read John as a whole now, as they read the whole gospel, you'll find this theme comes up a lot. Jesus is often asking for a drink or providing a drink. Happens loads. So people, in fact, the first time we meet Jesus doing a miracle, people come up to him and say, they've, they've, they've run out of wine. He says, oh, don't worry, I'll sort that. And then provides loads and loads of wine for people to drink. In this story, it begins with him asking another person for a drink. In chapter 7, he's preaching in the temple courts for the first time, and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And even as he's dying on the cross in John's gospel, one of the things he says is, I'm thirsty. And so as he is calling out for real water, if you like, drinking water, he then dies, somebody sticks a spear in his side, and water flows out as if to show that the one who needed the drink is ultimately going to provide water for all and healing for the world through the water that flows from inside his inmost being. So there's quite a theme going on here. So at one level, he's just saying, yeah, give me a drink. But on another level, there's other stuff going on to reveal the significance of drinking water in the story that we're about to read. That's the first thing he says. Give me a drink, verse 7. Second thing he says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And in that sentence, he switches the focus from what he needs from her to what she needs from him. And the speaking one, Jesus Christ, is, he's always doing that, right? We think we're doing something for him, but actually you then look back years later and think, no, 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 Jesus was doing something for me. I was doing that because I just wanted to help God out. And what I've found is, of course, God didn't really need me to do it. He could have found anyone. But he wanted me to do it because he wanted me to grow or he wanted me to be blessed in this way or challenged or stretched. So he feels like he's saying, hey, do me a favor. Help me out with this. But actually underneath it, what happens, we look back months or years later and say, oh, he was helping me. And that dynamic's always in play in the ministry of Jesus. You can see it time and time again in the Gospels. The third thing he says begins to up the ante theologically. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks this water, drinking water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what he's doing now is he's moving the conversation in a theological direction because he wants this woman to see that although she does need water, what she needs even more than water is the Holy Spirit. She needs the person of God. She needs the gift of divine life like water, not just given to her as a one-off, but bubbling up from inside her all the time so that she might overflow and share him with other people. That's what she needs. She thinks she just needs a drink of water, but she doesn't. She needs something deeper than that. She needs the Spirit of God, which Jesus has come to give to her. So she comes looking for water, and she leaves with a well. It's an amazing turnaround to take place in such a short story. The fourth thing she says, verse 16, begins to get to the the crux of the issue in her life, the presenting issue for her. Verse 16, he says, why don't you go and call your husband and come back? And this is beginning to get to the presenting issue, as we'll see, but he doesn't start there. He doesn't, Jesus knows what he's about to disclose about this woman and her marital history, but he doesn't begin there. He doesn't begin with the painful, shameful thing that she's wrestling with. He begins by saying, hey, give me a drink, and building relationship and talking about the fact that she's actually got a deeper need deep down. But having established that relationship, he then moves in and says, hey, I know that this is the painful issue for you, and I want to talk about that as well. And then the fifth thing he says picks up on that and expands a bit more. Verse 17, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. Now, that's presumably why, as I said earlier, that's why probably she's drawing water at noon. Now, the text never quite tells us, but know much about sort of shame culture in a Middle Eastern village. It's a pretty good bet that the reason why she's there is because actually she is ashamed and she doesn't do most of the things with the other women in the village at the same time. Now, we don't know why this complicated marital history or whatever is is her story. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe she has been unfaithful. That's how sometimes our people read it. Maybe she's just slept around. She's left multiple husbands. Maybe. Maybe she's actually the victim of multiple other people mistreating her. Maybe she's been abused or abandoned or left behind. Either way, in some ways, we don't know for certain and it doesn't really matter ultimately because the point is this is painful and shameful for her and Jesus wants to speak into that situation. And the speaking one is so gentle. He's so gentle. He cares for her. He knows her. He sees her. Not just generic woman, but this particular woman with this, obviously, ethnic history as a Samaritan, with this particular social and marital history. He sees her for who she is, and he wants to minister to her. Not just the person next door to her. This woman, and he wants to help her. So that's the fifth thing he says. The sixth thing the speaking one says is much the longest in the passage. Chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So she's thrown in a theological discussion, right? Maybe because she feels a little bit uncomfortable with the questions about her husband. And she says, well, Samaritans worship in Samaria. Judeans worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? And Jesus is actually quite clear. The Jews are right. She's wrong. He says it very bluntly. Well, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. 
which is true. And Jesus is just telling, that's how scripture should be read. That's the truth of the matter. And actually, sometimes you do. In order to love people, you need to speak the truth to them, even if it's not what they want to hear. Every parent knows that. Every friend who's had someone who's done, made an unwise choice knows sometimes love requires truth. Charity requires clarity. You sometimes have to tell people straight, no, that's not, you're right, that's not what God is like. God is like this, not like that. But the speaking one, Jesus, then broadens the discussion very quickly to cut to the heart of it for her. And he says, ultimately, God is spirit and his worshippers are going to worship in the spirit and in truth. In other words, the where matters less than the who and the how. So you're arguing about, is it this mountain? Is it over there? Mount Zion, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, Samaria, which is right? And Jesus said, well, okay, the Jews are right about this one as it happens. And it's important you know that. But ultimately, God is looking for worshippers all over the world who are going to worship spiritually and truthfully. And at that point, the where is not going to matter so much. And what you need to know is who God is and how you worship him rather than simply where. And then finally, at least in this conversation, the seventh thing Jesus says is, as we've seen, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Which is just a glorious statement and in the context and as we've looked at, I am. I am the speaking one. I am the Messiah. I am the word made flesh. But it's also a beautifully trinitarian passage of father son and spirit together because he just said the father is seeking people who will worship in the spirit and in truth and i am the speaking one father son and spirit all in cahoots drawing people into worship of the true god brothers and sisters the speaking one wants to speak to you today he's here because he wants you to hear his voice he is speaking to you and this is how he speaks to us through scripture he, like, the, like, give me a drink. He initiates communication with us. He comes up to us and says, I want to talk to you. I want to start a connection, a relationship with you. Especially, by the way, if you're marginal or excluded like this woman was. He comes to provide for us. So he wants to talk about how what he can do is going to help us find him rather than just get us to do favours for him. He doesn't just come to say, I need, you, I need some help. He comes ultimately to say, I'm here to help you. I want to give you more than you're asking for. You've come for a drink. I want to give you a well, a spring, a fountain bubbling up to eternal life. And then he does what Jesus does in this story. He speaks into our pain. He says, I can see that thing that's kneeling away at you, that's been hard for you, either something you've done or that's been done to you, or maybe both, but I can see it. And I want to talk about it. I want to draw you out and I want to help you. And I can see you, not just the person to your left or your right behind you or more impressive than you in this way, whatever, I want to talk to you and he speaks to us in our pain and our difficulty when we're wrong he tells us straight like he does to this woman the man you're living with is not your husband you're worshiping what you don't know he says things that he tells us home truths and sometimes they're uncomfortable like having a plaster ripped off and ow that was i didn't want that jesus but he does and he will speak he loves us enough to speak the truth but then he also loves us enough to say in the end what matters is that you come to worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. And then he concludes by revealing who he is, the I am, the speaking one, the Messiah who is called Christ. So let's come to him and receive the water welling up to eternal life as we pray and worship him. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the spirit who leads us into all truth. And we thank you, Lord, that in the Son and the Spirit, we have the words of God spoken directly to us. 
Lord, we pray we would respond with obedience to your words as they summon to our hearts, as they draw us into the life that God has for us. And we pray that you would give us a fresh encounter of and experience of the love that Jesus shows in this story and that Jesus has shown to all of us who know you and who honour him. Lord, we ask for your mercy. Hear our prayer and lead us into all the truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.